And that's what the Song of the Lamb is here, verse 3 and 4. And they sing the Song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. That's the song of eternity. That's the song of heaven. Praising God, awestruck of, about His goodness and His love and His mercy that would redeem fallen sinners like we, unworthy of the least of His mercies. But because of the great love wherewith He loved us, He sent His Son to die for us. And we are now seen as standing in heaven or on the throne, singing His praises. And, and part of it is we sing, Lord, who shall not fear you? And glorify your name. Well, there's a lot of people right now. In fact, there is less fear of God in our country today than I think in any other time in our nation's history, not to mention the whole world. And part of the tribulation is all about God putting the fear of God back into the arrogant heart of man. Now, if by God doing that, some fall to the knees and repent and receive Christ, wonderful. But he's going to get praise from people one way or another. If they won't praise him voluntarily, well, they will praise him um, without their willingness to do so. I mean, someday, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. But if you wait until that day to do that, it's too late. You will confess him as Lord. You will acknowledge that he is God of all. It's just that he is not your Lord and not your God. And so you won't be spending eternity with him. Why should God force a person? People say, how cruel that a God, that God should send people to hell. Well, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I mean, why should God force people to live with him forever who want nothing to do with him? It's not God's fault that people go to hell. They choose to go there. God wants to keep them from going to hell, but he won't force them to go to heaven. Verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. John said, Behold, I looked, and behold. Now in the Greek, that's an expression of awe, wonder. Why? John's a Jew. No Jew who was not the high priest ever looked into the Holy of Holies. 
Can you imagine if you're a Jewish person all your life, you recognize that that is something that no one ever goes into the Holy of Holies except the high priest, and only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. And if he didn't get his heart right with God before he went into the Holy of Holies, as we've said many times, uh, on the day of Yom Kippur, before he went into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, uh, they had to tie a rope around his ankle. They sewed bells around uh, the hem of his robe so they could hear him moving around in there, you know? And if for some reason the tinkling stopped and you heard a thud, well... You didn't want to go in after him because you'd be wiped out. You just pulled the guy out. And that's how holy the Holy of Holies was. And here John says, wow, I looked and behold, the Holy of Holies was open. I, I saw right into it, right? Well, you know, it's just because, you know, God is revealing himself because of we're, we're the redeemed, right? And we have, we have the right through the blood of Christ to come into his presence. Um, the expression, uh, the temple, there, uh, is a Greek word that means the temple proper, meaning the holy place and the most holy place. I mean, there is a word in the Greek for temple, which means the whole temple precinct, which in Jesus' day was quite large, okay, many acres. But when it says naos in the Greek, it means the temple proper, the actual building, which held the, you know, was, was the holy place and the holy of holies, all right? But it was it's called here... Uh, the, the tabernacle of the testimony. The testimony uh, refers to the um, Ten Commandments, okay, the two tables of the law. It's called the testimony, the Word of God. And it was housed in the temple. That's why there were the tabernacle too. That's why it was called sometimes the tabernacle of the testimony. Where were the tablets housed in the Ark of the Covenant, Right? which was also sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony. So the tables of the law were in the Ark of the Covenant, which sat in the most holy place in the tabernacle, hence the expression, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. All right? It was all built around the Word of God, the law of God. And uh, it says these angels... Um, wore pure bright linen. It speaks of holiness, of course. They were girded with golden bands around their chest. Well, gold is a kingly metal. And it just spoke of the fact that they uh, served before the king, that they were, you know, maybe a special envoy of angels that uh, ministered to him and did his bidding. Verse 7, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God uh, refers to shallow saucers, not deep bowls. The idea is that these are kind of shallow saucers, which were used, by the way, uh, in the sacrificial system in the tabernacle and temple. Sometimes they were used to catch blood. Uh, sometimes they were used actually to drink from. Uh, but the idea is they were, uh, they, because they were shallow, the contents could be poured out quickly. And, and it wasn't a, a pouring like you would a pitcher of water, like you would have with a deep bowl, you'd pour and pour. These judgments, when they come, are not going to be stretched out. It's going to be boom, boom, poured out one after another quickly, completely, and they're going to have the desired effect that God wants. Someone has said, those who refuse to drink the cup of salvation will be drowned in the judgments poured from the bowls of wrath. Verse 8. 
John said, the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. John tells us that the smoke filled the temple, making it impossible to enter until these final seven plagues were completed. Now, this reminds me of two other times in the scriptures. Once uh, with the tabernacle when it was dedicated under Moses, and then later on when Solomon finished the temple and dedicated it, there's two similar passages. The first out of Exodus 40, verses 34 and 5, which says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. This would be the Shekinah glory. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11, when Solomon was dedicating the temple now, many years later, and it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Let me just end by saying this. When they were dedicating the temple, they were singing. The Levites and so on were singing. They were praising God, you know, who was awesome in holiness and his mercy endures forever. And as they were singing this over and over again about the glory of God and his mercy enduring forever, as they reached a kind of crescendo, suddenly the Shekinah glory filled the temple. The presence of God filled it so that the priest could no longer stand to minister, which means, I assumed, they had to leave and even kneel down. The Bible says God inhabits the praises of his people. And if we want God's presence in our lives, in our homes, in our church, we have to be people of praise, which means you know, praise is the antithesis of worry and fear, right? Isn't it when you think about it? I mean, if you're worrying and you're afraid, your chances are you're not praising God. But if you're facing a situation where uh, things look pretty bleak, your back is against the wall, looks like you're going under, and you stop and you remember the promises of God, how he's going to take care of you, provide for you, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And as a response to that, faith wells up in your heart and you begin to sing praises to God. I believe the presence of God will fill that place, will fill your heart, will fill this church. So, you know, we want God's presence to be here so powerfully that we can't stand. In the sense, there can't be a haughty person who stands upright. We all have to be on our knees acknowledging how great he is. Revelation chapter 16. Tonight we come to the last and greatest judgments that God is going to pour out on this Christ-rejecting, rebellious world. Uh, the bold judgments are God's super judgments. You might call them God's Super Bowl judgments. I, I don't know. They're pretty bad. They're pretty bad. So was that joke. But I mean, uh, hey, you got to make a little this a little light. I mean, it's pretty depressing stuff. Um, but if you remember in chapter 15, verses 6 and 7, we read, And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. 
Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. We said these bowls are shallow saucers which enable the contents to be poured out quickly. That's the idea here. These last seven plagues come quickly, and I do believe they come one after another in just a few months' time, right before the battle of Armageddon and Jesus returns to the earth to establish his kingdom. The reason they come in such rapid-fire succession is because by this point now, the day of salvation is over. Everybody that's going to get saved has gotten saved, and the rest who are left have so hardened their hearts. I mean, they have heard the gospel now from the two witnesses, from the 144,000, from all the converts probably that they were that had been brought into the kingdom through the ministry of the 144,000 and two witnesses. They've heard the gospel preached from heaven, from angels. I mean, they've heard it, and they've rejected it. And so what is left, right? I mean, the idea is that there's no sense in God bringing a judgment, waiting a while for people to think about it and repent. These folks are no longer going to repent. Their hearts are so hard. So these last seven judgments come quickly in kind of rapid fire succession. It reminds us of what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, when he said, For if we sin willfully... After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. And that's exactly what we're going to be seeing with these folks. Okay, there's nothing left to say. It's like when Jesus stood before Herod, remember? And Herod, you know, wanted him to perform a miracle to entertain him. And Herod was trying to talk with him. And the Lord was just quiet. He didn't say a word. And then finally Herod and his soldiers began to mock him and send him back to Pilate to be crucified. You know, there comes a point when God no longer says anything more because he said all he needs to say. And if a person has hardened their hearts and they don't want to hear it or they, they just don't receive it anymore, what's the point? So what you have is kind of the calm before the storm. I mean, the Lord has basically said all he's going to say. And now what's coming, what's left is nothing but judgment. Now, in verse 1, we read, John said, Then I heard a voice, a loud voice, from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. You know, people today will tolerate talk about God as long as it's limited to his love and his mercy, right? But they cannot understand, and therefore they will not tolerate any talk about a God of wrath, a God of judgment, a God who will punish sin. See, people today don't take sin seriously, for the most part. And we know that Christians do. But for the most part, the world we're living in doesn't take sin seriously anymore. Therefore, because they don't take sin seriously, they don't think God takes sin seriously. And because of that, they have this concept of God where God is 
all love, all kindness, all mercy, all grace. God would never send anyone to hell unless they were the worst of sinners. I mean, it's that concept of God, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. It's the Sunday school concept of Jesus, right? And yet we read in chapter 6 how that at one point when the sixth seal is broken, People on the earth hide themselves in caves and say, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of his fierce judgment or wrath is coming. Who can stand? The wrath of the Lamb. That sounds kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Uh, The wrath of the Lamb. Those two don't even go together. A Lamb is meek and gentle. I mean, I've never seen an attack Lamb. You want to protect your property. You don't get yourself a lamb. You get a Doberman or a Rottweiler or something like that. I mean, it doesn't even go together. But see, this is the concept people have, that Jesus came the first time and he was so meek. He was so gentle. He was so kind. He willingly went to the cross. He submitted to the, to the beating. He didn't fight. He didn't. And, and this is the concept that they have burned in their minds about Christ, that he's just meek and mild, gentle Jesus, walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, patting the little kids on the head and saying, tell them, turn the other cheek. This Jesus would never judge us. He's kind. He's gentle. Well, he's also righteous. He's also holy. And the Lamb of God who came the first time to die for our sins is going to come the second time as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, a lion, I wouldn't mind having a lion protect my property. Now, that's, that's the wrath there. But Jesus is kind and he's gentle. And he said something that everybody on this earth ought to really take to heart. He likened himself to a stone, right? And he said, if the stone falls upon you, it will crush you. Uh, excuse me. If you fall upon the stone, I should say, you will be broken. But if you refuse, the stone someday will fall on you and it will crush you. And see, there's the two ways we can relate to Jesus. If we fall on him in brokenness and surrender, he becomes our loving Savior. If we rebel and resist, someday he will fall on us in judgment. He'll become our righteous judge. And that's something that people need to understand. They only want to focus on one aspect of God's character. The love, the mercy, the grace, the gentleness. They, they refuse to acknowledge or even understand that God is also righteous and holy and just. He cannot look the other way when it comes to sin. Now, he loved us so much he didn't want us to be punished for our own sins. That's why Jesus came. But if you refuse to receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you will stand before him yourself and he will judge you. Now, in each of these bold judgments, God is targeting something specifically. The first bowl is poured out on the worshipers of the beast and his image. Verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Now, let me just stop and say this. There is some dispute, some you know, debate, because the bowls are so similar to the trumpet judgments, uh, a lot of people think that they're really one and the same. 
And although they are similar, they are definitely not the same. The trumpet judgments we read as we study those were limited. Uh, yes, they were poured out at one point on the water, but it was a third of the water, right? A third of the green grass was burned up. These bold judgments are worldwide. They are much bigger in scope. Uh, many commentators said the best way to understand the bold judgments is that they are an expansion of the seventh trumpet judgment. So yes, what the, what the trumpets introduced in limited form, the bold judgments take it to the max, the super judgments of God, you might say. Uh, during the trumpet judgments, God was still giving people time to repent. That's why they weren't worldwide. They weren't, you know, totally catastrophic. He was trying to, even in judgment, give people time to repent. At this point, it's not going to happen. Nobody else is getting saved. Everyone who has gotten saved is saved or will get saved has gotten saved. And what's left are these very hard-hearted people. And you're going to see it tonight that no matter what God pours out on them, they're not softening. They become more resolute in their rebellion and defiance. So, no, this is not the same. These go beyond the trumpet judgments. And um, in fact, as the uh, bold judgments gets poured out, they become more and more severe. Each one becomes a little more severe. This first one, though, uh, reminds us of the sixth plague of Egypt. And these uh, bold judgments uh, do, in, in many ways, parallel those judgments on Egypt. But see, again, the judgments on Egypt were localized. These are going to be worldwide, all right? Egypt in Scripture is a type of the world. These are going to be poured out on a literal world, okay, on a worldwide scale. But they remind us of the sixth plague. You'll read that in, in Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. But also something out of Deuteronomy 28 I want to draw your attention to, uh, where God prophesied of this judgment, but He did so to Israel in Deuteronomy 28. And I want you to know that, that prophecy that I'm going to read you right now has never been fulfilled in Israel's history, so it has to be future. In Deuteronomy 28, I'll just pick out a couple verses. Verse 27. Now God is pronouncing, first of all, He pronounced the blessings for their, for their obedience. If you obey me, God said, here's what the blessings you're going to have. And he goes through a whole list. Then He said, now these are the curses that are going to come upon you if you disobey me. And then He begins to list a whole bunch of those. But in verse 27, he first of all says, The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Verse 35. The Lord will strike you in the knees and on the top uh, of the legs with severe boils which cannot be healed. And from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. Doesn't sound pleasant. I want you to notice, though, that um, this judgment is going to be poured out on those who have submitted to the beast, the Antichrist, who have worshipped him, who have taken his mark upon them, those that have rejected the angels uh, when the angel was dispatched by God to preach the gospel one last time. In case anybody on the face of the earth by this time had not heard it, to cover all bases, make sure everyone had a chance, God dispatches an angel from heaven who speaks, who preaches in a, a miraculous tongue where everybody on the earth understands it. Uh, Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, John said that I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, 
having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, I'm sure there were other things the angels said, but that was the gist of it. And I, and I see in this, as we studied when we, we looked at chapter 14, the, the fact that the angel keys in on and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water, to me gives an indication that part of the problem here is that the, uh, the, the world, the earth dwellers, those who have rejected Christ, have rejected the creator and are now worshiping the creation. I think that's going to be one of the things during this period where people are worshiping all kinds of gods, especially the Antichrist is God, but in the process they're worshiping Mother Earth, uh, as people are doing today, right? Not, I'm, you know, I'm all for picking up trash in the parking lot. I'm, I'm all for taking care of God's creation. But it's become an obsession with some people. It's become uh, idolatry, where they, they worship the earth. And so God is going to pour out these judgments in part on the gods that people have been worshiping. And we're going to see that as we go. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for